Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 3. Next Steps. I returned to Glasgow Sick Children's Hospital, or, to give it its formal name, the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Glasgow. This is based on the west side of Glasgow next to the River Clyde in an area known as York Hill. As a result, none of us called it the Royal Hospital for Sick Children. We all called it York Hill. I was very excited. Although I'd enjoyed my time in neonates, I was looking forward to the much wider range of experiences that would come in general paediatrics. By now I was a senior junior doctor, and so was given more responsibility and freedom by my registrars. This was great, but also just a little bit scary. One of the things you learn very quickly in paediatrics is just how fast children become ill, but also how quickly they get better. One of the scariest conditions that we would come across at that time is rarely seen nowadays due to the introduction of Hib vaccine. At that time, though, we feared seeing children coming in with high temperature, looking very unwell, drooling saliva, and making a noisy, squeaky sound as they breathed in. It was even more scary if they were not making a noise on breathing, as this could mean that the child was close to stopping breathing altogether. Often these children would just lean forward as though they seemed more comfortable in that position. It didn't take any great diagnostic skill, but very quickly one grew to recognise children presenting in this way as having acute epiglottitis. Of course we saw a lot of children with a much less serious condition marked by noisy breathing on inspiration called croup. Although croup could become serious, it was generally a much milder problem and it was usually easy to distinguish the two. The key priority was to immediately recognise the really sick children with epiglottitis and to ensure that nobody put anything in their mouths, as simply attempting to look down the throat could be enough to cause a sudden and complete obstruction of the airway. Even as a more experienced junior doctor, this was a situation in which you would immediately call for senior help and the immediate presence of someone who could effectively make the airway secure. The treatment for epiglottitis was with antibiotics, and usually the children would get better very quickly, but it was often touch and go as to whether the airway was secured in a calm and planned way, or whether it was done as a matter of extreme urgency. So what's going on in epiglottitis? The epiglottis is a small flap of skin which covers the voice box or larynx so that when you swallow, food or fluid doesn't go down into your lungs. Epiglottitis is the name given to inflammation of that flap of skin. Inflammation causes the epiglottis to swell. This causes narrowing of the upper airway, meaning that air passing into the lungs has to squeeze past this obstruction, leading to a very noisy, squeaky sound on breathing in. This noise is known as stridor, either because of progression of the disease or as a result of minor trauma, for example if someone unwisely poked a stick in the back of the throat to have a look. The epiglottis could suddenly and abruptly swell further, leading to complete obstruction of the airway. 
this would be immediately life-threatening. In this situation, it would not be possible to pass an endotracheal tube because of the swelling. An endotracheal tube is a tube that passes through either the nose or the mouth, into the larynx and then into the upper airway. As a result of the obstruction, the only option would be an emergency procedure known as a tracheostomy. Because of the risk of obstruction, the child needed immediate availability of a person skilled in either being able to pass an endotracheal tube without worsening the swelling or proceeding to tracheostomy without delay. As a junior doctor, your job was always to wait with the patient until the senior help arrived. It was essential to remain calm because you didn't want to frighten the child or frighten the parents any more than they already were, as this could cause sudden deterioration. In the past, the commonest cause of epiglottitis in under fives was infection with a bacterium known as Haemophilus influenzae. Since the introduction of the Hib vaccine in this country in the 1990s, and indeed in 192 countries around the world now, this infection has almost disappeared, and epiglottitis is now a rare condition, although it can be caused by bacteria other than Haemophilus, by scalds from hot liquids, or by chemical burns. I was lucky enough to be in training when the Hib vaccine was introduced, and the dramatic reduction in this disease was incredible. One of the children I remember very well from those days was a little girl called Ailsa. She had severe muscle weakness which had been present from birth. When I first met her she was probably around four or five. She had the sunniest disposition of any child you could imagine. She couldn't walk and depended on her mother to push her around in a buggy or a wheelchair for mobility. She even struggled to hold up her head sometimes and had little ability to use her arms. Despite this, she remained ever cheerful. I was aware that the neurologist didn't really know what had caused a severe muscle problem, although she'd been widely discussed with experts from all over the world. I mostly saw her because she kept being admitted to the ward with chest infections. Her muscle weakness meant that her cough was poor, and her limited ability to move meant that she was at risk of infection because of her inability to clear secretions. She would come into hospital breathless and severely unwell, but even at her worst you knew that she was not someone to give in. Very quickly after admission she would perk up, and then she would be smiley and chatty. She loved people to be with her, and all the staff in hospital would vie for the chance to look after her and to play with her. As the junior doctor on the ward I had more time with her than almost anyone else other than her mother, and I really valued the time I had to spend with her. In many ways, I suppose, I didn't really appreciate the significance of her problem, and it was only when I returned to neurology as a middle-grade doctor that I began to realise the inevitable consequence of her severe muscle weakness. Elsa's mum did understand that, but she also knew that she had to keep that to herself. Elsa was very bright, but fortunately very young, so I don't think she fully recognised that she was different from other children. For her, it often seemed that her life in a wheelchair was normal, and she never seemed to show envy of children who could walk around without support. Although, in retrospect, I suppose she must have felt that way. Out of the six months that I spent on the ward, 
On that occasion, Elsa was probably there for three of them. I guess it was Elsa who made me first think of a career in child neurology, although she wasn't the only one. The other person who inspired my interest in paediatric neurology was the neurology consultant, a man called John Stevenson. More of him in a later episode. I continued to encounter Ailsa on many occasions later when I returned as a middle grade doctor in neurology. Ailsa had a congenital myopathy. Now myopathy is just a fancy way of saying a problem with the muscles and congenital simply means that the problem is one that has been present from birth. There are many different types of congenital myopathy. Many of them are defined or diagnosed on the basis of the appearance of the muscle fibres under a microscope or based on an identified genetic abnormality. Advances in modern genetics have led to a greater understanding and more accurate diagnosis of these conditions. But sometimes, as in Elsa's case, no specific cause is identified for the myopathy. Very often, although the muscle disease itself is not progressive, the severe muscle weakness, which is the nature of the condition, leads to progressive impairments for the affected child. This can result in shortening of muscles across joints, leading to joint deformity. Similarly, weakness of the muscles around the spine can lead to curvature of the spine, known as scoliosis. Although these problems cannot be completely avoided, one of the key elements of treatment of myopathy is the maintenance of joint ranges through regular physical therapy. Surgical treatment of joint deformities and scoliosis may also be needed. One of the most significant implications, though, of muscle weakness is its impact on breathing. As a result of reduced mobility or immobility, impaired cough and underbreathing or hypoventilation due to weak breathing muscles, children with congenital myopathy are prone to repeated chest infections, which can, over time, lead to progressive respiratory insufficiency. Many children with congenital myopathy will die young, mainly as a result of repeated chest infection. Nowadays, many of these children will be offered ventilatory support, usually with overnight mask ventilation, known as non-invasive ventilation, and this can make a dramatic impact on quality of life, with such benefits as reduced hospital admissions for some, improved alertness by avoiding accumulation of carbon dioxide due to hypoventilation, and so on. Although some congenital myopathies may be associated with intellectual disability, many are not, and children may be fully aware of their condition and its implications. Before the end of this six months in general paediatrics, I had to look around for another job. I was fortunate enough to be appointed as a registrar in neonatology in yet another hospital in Glasgow. This was my first experience as a middle grade doctor. Suddenly I found myself supervising junior doctors. Instead of it being me asking my registrar for advice, I was now the one that the junior doctors would approach for help. Once again, I entered the world of neonatology with gusto. As a junior or middle grade doctor, it's an exciting specialty with plenty to do. There are lots of practical procedures to master, sick babies to look after, and always the need to keep really good lines of communication 
both between staff and between staff and parents. The unit in which I worked was a small one, and I rapidly got to know all of the staff. I quickly came to realise that effective delivery of healthcare isn't just the job of doctors and nurses. I rapidly came to appreciate the really important work of the cleaners, the porters, the secretarial and clerical staff, etc. There's a story, often told, of when President John F. Kennedy went to visit NASA for the first time in 1962. There he met a cleaner carrying a broom. President Kennedy asked the man what he did, to which the man replied, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. That's so true in healthcare as well. Everyone working in the unit understood that their job was to make sick babies better, whether by ensuring a clean environment, ensuring effective written communication, or by directly intervening with the babies. It may be that that insight into effective team working was the single most important thing I learned during my time in neonates there. One of the very worrying problems that premature babies can develop is a condition known as necrotizing enterocolitis. David was a baby who had been born at 27 weeks gestation, weighing 750 grams. This was almost at the limit of gestation that we would intervene in in those days. He was tiny. He required ventilatory support from birth and incredibly careful attention to all details of his care. Somewhat surprisingly, he seemed to be very stable for the first few days of life. Although he needed quite a lot of support from the ventilator initially, after a few days we were able to start to reduce the amount of support he was receiving. Because he was doing so well, we were able to cautiously introduce milk feeds down his nasogastric tube. His parents even began to relax a little bit, although they realised that he was still extremely small and there were still very difficult days ahead. One morning, on his tenth day of life, the nurses called me to see David. He looked a bit grey, he wasn't as active as he had been previously, and his tummy looked a little bit swollen. Over the period of an hour, his condition dramatically worsened. His blood pressure dropped, his temperature dropped, and he looked extremely ill. An x-ray of his tummy revealed that loops of his bowel were blown up, and there was air in the lining of his bowel wall. I knew that this was the feared condition called necrotizing enterocolitis. We stopped his feeds, replaced fluids intravenously, and started antibiotics. Although David initially seemed to rally, things continued to deteriorate. His tummy became very tense and very swollen, and blood began to appear in his stools. A repeat x-ray showed air outside his bowel, but inside his abdomen. We called the paediatric surgeons who attended quickly, and after stabilising him, David was taken to theatre, where a section of bowel that had died was removed. He remained very unwell and very unstable for the next few days, and we and his parents feared that he may not make it. However, then things gradually began to improve, and by the time he was three weeks of age, David was back onto feeds down the nasogastric tube. He remained with us for many weeks, but gradually gained weight. His parents, who'd always had nurses and doctors around to help them look after him, came in and stayed with him on their own in our parents' room. Eventually he was allowed home, weighing nearly 2.5 kilos. His parents weren't the only people who were pleased and proud that day. 
necrotizing enterocolitis, or NEC, has been known about for more than a century. It's the commonest condition affecting the gut in premature babies. The most important risk factors are prematurity and low birth weight. Although NEC is rare in babies overall, more than 10% of babies weighing less than 1.5 kilograms at birth will experience NEC. The vast majority of cases of NEC, though, occur in babies of very low birth weight. Nobody really knows what causes NEC, but it's known that it's probably the result of a combination of a number of insults to the gut, including vascular insults, toxic and infective causes. It's also thought that genetic factors may play a part. Typically, NEC starts within the first two weeks of life, in the majority of cases in a baby who's been started on feeds into the gut. Babies affected by neck present with distension of the abdomen, altered stools, often with blood and mucus, and with bile stain vomiting. Typically, the baby will look extremely unwell and often becomes lethargic and shocked. The diagnosis is usually confirmed on abdominal x-ray, but ultrasound scanning may also be useful. The baby is usually treated by stopping feeds in order to rest the bowel and is started on antibiotics. If the baby is shocked, then this is treated, and some babies may require a blood transfusion. If the bowel has perforated or become necrotic, in other words, a section of the bowel appears to have died, then surgical intervention will be required. Up to 40% of babies with neck will require some form of surgical intervention. Unfortunately, this is a condition with a significant mortality, but 75% of babies who develop neck will survive, although some of them will have complications. For example, if a significant portion of the bowel has been removed, they may have problems with absorption of food or fluids, the so-called short bowel syndrome. Other complications include narrowing of the bowel or development of abscesses. However, once a baby starts to recover, it's usually possible to reinstitute feeding into the gut within 7 to 10 days, and the baby then generally goes on and is well. Repeated attacks can occasionally occur. By the end of my time as a registrar in neonatology, I realised that neonates was not the life for me. Although seeing a baby born at 750 grams, going home weighing 2.4 kilograms was incredibly exciting and rewarding, I always felt that the clinical challenges were insufficient for me, and I couldn't see myself spending my whole life doing the same thing over and over again. I would never change the time I'd had there. I formed incredibly strong friendships with the staff, and I felt unbelievably privileged to have been part of the team working there. Nevertheless, by the end of 12 months, I knew that I would never return to neonatology. This turned out to be only nearly true. Once again I had to apply for a job and this time I was successful in obtaining a registrar post back at York Hill. I was to start in neurology. More of that next time. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode. Goodbye.